For those of you guys watching uh, online from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains, my name is Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. And if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. And with that, I just want to take a second and pray for us. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. You were such a good God. And Lord, right now we think of our, our leaders. We think of President Biden. We ask that you would help him make good decisions. We pray that you'd give him wisdom, that you would protect him. Lord, his mind, just his body, his mental faculties. Um, and we pray that for all of our leaders, that you would help them. And for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad, we, we pray for their, their safety. And we also pray for their salvation, because many of those guys are not Christians. Lord, we think of uh, the persecuted church, Elias Sherabu, being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria, and Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran, and Pastor Wang and John imprisoned in China. Lord, for the Christians in Ukraine and Russia, please help them, God. For Vladimir Putin specifically, for Vladimir Putin, Lord, we pray that you would confuse and frustrate his plans and that in your grace you might save him. You might save him. Lord, for the, the Christians, God, in Afghanistan and North Korea and Eritrea and Somalia and the South Sudan, just to name a few places, help them, Jesus. Help them. And as the author of Hebrews instructs us, Lord, we remember those who are in chains right now as if we were right there in chains with them. And today, God, I uh, pray that you'd help me to, uh, to teach, to speak, to preach well, that you would keep me from error, from making a mistake, saying something you don't want me to say. And Lord, perhaps if there is something you want me to say that I haven't even planned on saying, I, I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit in my life in this moment. I pray for those of us, Lord, here right now, that you just free us from distraction, that you'd free us from anxiety, that we would just be totally dialed in and we'd hear from you, God, right now. Help us to hear from you. We need you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this is the end of an era, some might say. Um, if you're here for the very first time, we love expository preaching. That's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, through the story. And so we've been doing that for over a year. And today, um, today we end that story. We, we end our study in the book of Genesis. This will be the 45th sermon that I have preached in Genesis. But uh, hopefully we'll go out just the way we came in with a bang. Um, it is a great text. I hope it encourages your hearts. It has encouraged me all week long getting to work on it. Um, I'll set this up for you guys if you are here for the first time. We are continuing the story of the life of Joseph. And Joseph, last week, he had to bury his dad. He had to say goodbye to his pops. Um, his father, Jacob, had some you know, hard things he had to say to Joseph's brothers. Some of Joseph's brothers are walking on the right path. Others of Joseph's brothers, not so much. And so there's this kind of national mourning, this pause button. Flags are at half staff. Okay, school's canceled uh, for the people there in Egypt. And they go and they bury Jacob. 
And uh, Joseph's brothers are scared. They're, they're nervous. Um, they're nervous that maybe now with dad being dead, that Joseph, his vengeance will come alive from when they betrayed him years and years earlier. And that, well, that's where we pick up today. Part 45, chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You know, what's interesting about the story is that nowhere in the text do the brothers ask for or receive explicit statements of forgiveness from Joseph. And now that their father is dead, the fear that had seemingly once subsided from their initial contact with Joseph, when he first revealed himself to them, it's returned. See, to the brothers, it's inconceivable that Joseph can be merciful. To the brothers, it's inconceivable that Joseph will not require some penance of them. To the brothers, it seems inconceivable that Joseph could really forgive them. Their sin was so egregious that it, it's just impossible for him not to come after them now that their dad is dead. And, and for the brothers, their guilt remained this heavy burden which they still carried with them. And the text tells us in verse 16, they sent a message to Joseph. Look at verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Apparently the brothers are so afraid and concerned, they can't even go talk to Joseph in person. They got to send a message to him. And so for Joseph's brothers, much like many people today, they live in fear. They live in fear of vengeance. They live in fear of retaliation. They live in fear of their sin or past guilt. And the truth is, many people, including, including Christians, deal with some form of fear or anxiety over sin or past sin in their lives. And so the brothers, they send this message to Joseph. And verse 17 outlines the content of it. It says this, Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sins. So, so they send this message. They're like, this is from dad. Right before he died, he wanted you to hear this. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Notice what Joseph's brothers say. They say, forgive our sin. I point that out specifically because we live in a world that doesn't really believe in sin. And, and I don't even mean non-Christians. There are countless celebrity pastors, not even to mention local churches, like in this city and in other cities, in which the idea of sin is not really one that gets acknowledged. The problem is, when you diminish sin, you diminish the atoning work of Christ on the cross. See, the, the brothers aren't ignoring sin any longer. They're owning it, confessing it, receiving forgiveness. See, our, our culture, it values tolerance. The Bible values repentance. The world says, nothing is wrong with you. You're perfect just the way you are. Nothing needs to change. The Bible says, everything is wrong with you. And you need to turn away from your sin and you need to run to Jesus because it's only through Jesus in which forgiveness can be found. 
And so when Joseph finds out that his brothers are afraid to come and talk to him, when he, when he finds out that they're living in fear of retribution of him, that they haven't received forgiveness, he starts crying. The text says he wept, and he's crying here because Joseph has already forgiven them. Joseph's gift of forgiveness was given back in Genesis chapter 45, 20 plus years ago. The problem is the brothers haven't received the gift. They haven't opened the gift. They haven't enjoyed the gift. Because if they had, they wouldn't be living in such fear that they can't even go and talk to him. That's what fear does. That's what guilt does. That's what shame does. Like the brothers who are afraid, too afraid to go and talk to Joseph. See, in, in those moments where you sin, you're like, I can't pray and talk to God. I can't read my Bible right now. I just, I just did this sin last night. I can't go to church. I can't go to God. He doesn't want to hear from me. And yet in those moments, that's where you should be going. You should be running to him. See, Joseph starts crying here because he realizes at this point that his brother's relationship with him it hadn't yet fully been healed. And this is straight out of the devil's playbook. Some of you are here today and you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is stuff from months ago or years ago, past sin in your life, and you still haven't actually received forgiveness for it. And still others of you, like Joseph's brothers, struggle with actually believing that you are forgiven. Despite the fact that you've repented of those things from your past. The thought sometimes still lingers in your head. Am I really? Am I really forgiven? Well, verse 18 says this. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, where are your servants, Joseph? His brothers come and bow down. Remember what kicked off this entire story? It's been many, many years. His brother's jealousy. Their irritation. Their father played favorites. Of course, Joseph and all his dreams about his brothers bowing down to him. You see, the, the, the truth is I think a lot of people think the way Joseph's brothers do. A lot of people will feel like they have to do something to earn their forgiveness, and yet still others have misconceptions about what it means to actually receive it in the first place. I mean, case in point, would be anyone who's prayed the sinner's prayer, anyone who's asked Jesus to come into their heart. If you were like me growing up, you probably did that like 136 different times. Every time there was an altar call, a brain asked Jesus to come in my heart again. Like, why would someone need to do it 136 different times? And I think if we're being honest, just in case the time before it didn't stick. Right? Or be like the person, they've rededicated their life for the sixth time in the last year. And I'm like, dude, dude, you don't need to rededicate your life every time you sin. But rather, you need to experience God's forgiveness. That's what the devil does. He lies. He says, you're not really a Christian. You're not. You don't really have forgiveness. Joseph's brothers cannot contemplate. Now that their father is dead, how can Joseph really forgive them? 
You see, it's, it's not about praying some superstitious prayer that's not even in the Bible every time there's an invitation, but rather what you need to do is lay hold of the promises of God that are found in the Bible and actually believe them. That's what you need to do. Or Jesus would say, listen, if the Son has set you free, you are free. You are free. You're not condemned. He paid for those debts. Those debts are paid. So you're not the only one if you feel that way. I find that many Christians, and lo and behold, even Joseph's brothers, don't really think that they can be forgiven. Well, the story continues in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph can do whatever he wants, okay? He's the number two guy there in Egypt. If you ask the Egyptians, hey, is Joseph in the place of God? They might say, yep. Joseph says, no. He says, no, I'm not doing this. And then verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, my brothers, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, my brothers, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Going on back to verse 20. It's already there on the screen. Perfect. Let me be really clear. Joseph forgives them. But does Joseph ignore what happened? He doesn't. He doesn't ignore what's happened to him. He doesn't make excuses for his brothers. He doesn't say, oh, guys, it's nothing personal. Don't, don't you love it when people say that to you? Because it usually is personal. Right? The, your significant other breaks up with you. It's nothing personal. Let's still be friends. It's like, are you hearing yourself right now? Like, what's wrong with you? Or your boss fires you. It's nothing personal. Someone rips you off. One of your friends just decides to peace out, walk away from the friendship for no reason at all. It's nothing personal. Oh, it's just, just business. Nothing personal. Something to that effect. Joseph doesn't say this. Joseph doesn't make excuses for his brothers. Joseph acknowledges what happened. You guys straight up meant evil against me. Like what you did was really, really horrible. You see, sometimes when it comes to forgiveness, people draw false, unbiblical ideas. For example, I remember talking to this girl one time. And I told her very frankly, I said, you, you need to forgive this person who's wronged you. And she was like, but if I forgive this person that's wronged me, they won't even know that I forgave them. And they need to know that I forgave them. Do they have to know? In fact, not only can you forgive people, but you can forgive them and they not know. I mean, isn't this what we're talking about right now with Joseph's brothers who live in fear? Because they don't know. Furthermore, it's also possible to tell someone you forgive them when you really haven't. Instead, you form bitterness against them. And weeks go by, and months go by, and you still got this chip on your shoulder for something that they apologized for, and you said, oh, I forgive you, but you really didn't. And still, when it comes to forgiveness, you can readily forgive someone. In fact, I would argue that forgiveness can happen in a moment, but other times it can be somewhat of a process. And the reason it sometimes can be a process is because that person that you forgave, they sin against you again and again. 
And so you're having to forgive them again and again. And sometimes, sometimes you can forgive someone, but different things come up that cause you to have to relive some of that pain. Oftentimes when I'm counseling people, I, I remember one guy in particular who had gotten married and he really struggled, he really struggled with the fact that his wife, before they were married, she had a rather sexually sinful life before he met her. And so even though he forgave her, it still would cause pain from time to time in his life. After they were married, when different situations arose that, that caused him to think about the past. You see, Joseph's brothers can't seem to understand how they can be forgiven. And the truth is, when it comes to God, forgiveness is, forgiveness is we owe God, but he doesn't make us pay. Rather, he cancels our debts. And, and I'd also say forgiveness isn't so much about them as it is about you and God. See, sometimes the temptation is, if you forgive them, if you forgive that person, well, that means they're getting away with something. But that's not what it's about. But rather, when you forgive them, you're not letting them get away with something, but instead, you're allowing yourself to get away from everything. You can let God deal with them. And I'll say this for clarification. Forgiveness isn't the same thing as trust. Forgiveness is free. Trust is earned. Sometimes people will be like, oh, I cheated on you. Now you have to trust me. That's not what forgiveness means. Or, or on the flip side, sometimes people, they love to bring up the past. It's been like five years, right? And then they're like, on this day, five years ago, let me see. And they open a book. I, I had a guy, I knew a guy. And he literally had a book and it was dated from the offense that you committed against him. He was my RA. <laughs> I had lots of offenses against him. But that, right? And so he's keeping track of everything. It's like, oh, you're just like your mom, right? You did this four years ago, blah, 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 blah. So that's the other flip side of forgiveness. See, forgiveness doesn't mean automatic trust, but it doesn't also mean that you're constantly bringing up the past and just trying to rub it in the other person's face. But perhaps, even more significant in verse 20, is another idea, not even centered on forgiveness, but anchored on the sovereignty of God. And when I say the sovereignty of God, here's what I mean, because we're a really big fan of the sovereignty of God at Lynchburg City Church. A lot. Like, it's probably one of my favorite attributes of God. The psalmist would say this. He'd say Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wills. That's a good definition of sovereignty. Straight out of the Bible. That's Psalms 115.3 for taking notes. Right? He does whatever he wants to do because he's God. He's sovereign. Right? He's the quarterback. He ain't throwing a single incomplete pass. Right? Patrick Mahomes, Jalen Hurts, no incomplete passes from God. He's totally sovereign. Everything happens according to his plan and his will. So notice what verse 20 says. Verse 20, I would argue, is probably one of the most, it's the most significant verse in Genesis, probably the most significant verse in the Old Testament. I love verse 20. So get ready to have your minds blown. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He says, you meant evil, 
God meant it for good. You say, why is that significant? It's significant because we have a tendency to live and die on Christian slogans rather than on biblical text. For example, how many of you guys have heard the phrase, God didn't cause it or God didn't do it, but he can use it for good. Have you heard that phrase before? Okay, about eight of you who were brave enough to put your hand up in the air. I see the hands coming up now, right? Guess what Joseph doesn't say here? And, and if your guess is, I don't think he's going to say, God didn't cause this, but he can use it for good, you would be 100% right. See, Moses doesn't talk that way. That's how we talk. It always kind of mm, rubs me the wrong way sometimes when we talk in Christian slogans that aren't actually in the Bible. So, so look closely. See what he says. God meant it for good. Not to be confused with, he used it for good. In other words, in other words, here's this bad thing that happened to Joseph. It was really, really horrific. Terrible stuff occurred in Joseph's life. It was a crying shame. But the truth is, God just wasn't strong enough. He just wasn't able to stop it. If, if he had been bigger, maybe he could have, but he wasn't big enough to do anything about it until after it happened. See, that's typically how people talk, or I think. That's not what it says. It says, God meant it. And someone will say, Joe, 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 hold on, hold on. Are you trying to say that God meant for all these bad things to happen to Joseph? And I would respond with, isn't that sort of what it means by the word meant? Like if you were to say, I meant to punch you in the face, no one's going to misunderstand you and say, he didn't mean to punch me in the face. Right? There's, there's going to be no ambiguity about it. That's why you use the word meant to. He meant to. See, when it comes to difficult stories in the Bible, what we like to do, and you have to be very careful not to do this, but we like to change the meaning of Bible verses. And the reason we do that is because sometimes we feel the need to defend the honor of God. Let me be really clear. When it comes to defending God's honor or God's character, He doesn't need you! He doesn't need you to come and defend him. See, some of us struggle with this because you think God needs you to be his defender. He doesn't. You need him to be yours. Or as the great reformer Martin Luther would say, God is like a lion. And who ever heard of defending a lion? You ever heard of defending a lion? Simply let the lion loose. It will defend itself. Oh, it'll do just fine. When Joseph says in verse 20, God meant it, he is saying, everything I went through was God's plan. The hurt, the pain, the suffering, his plan. That's why he says God meant it. But the caveat is the design. In other words, what verse 20 is saying is that in the very act of evil, there were two different designs. In the sinful act, the brothers were designing evil, and in the same sinful act, God was designing good. And this is what we see all over the Bible. All over the Bible. What man designs, or what the devil designs for evil, God designs in the exact same plan, something for great good. And this is not to be confused with saying, oh, so God allows it. Or, he doesn't cause it, 
but he can use it for good. Because that terminology isn't biblical, it's just man-made. If it was God's plan for Joseph to suffer, it was also his plan for his brothers to betray him. It was God's plans for, for Joseph to be falsely accused of rape. It was his plan for Joseph to go to jail. It was his plan while in jail to meet Pharaoh's cupbearer and reveal the meaning of his dreams from the prison to the palace. It was all God's plan. That's why Joseph says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. People from whom Messiah will come. Mr. John Piper offers a very helpful illustration for this heavy doctrine that we're discussing on the sovereignty of God. He says, far too often, when it comes to suffering, especially suffering, we imagine God in the unbiblical light as this firefighter who simply responds to crisis. And as a firefighter, God acts passively, simply playing defense and trying to keep up with the situation. Much like that phrase we grew up hearing, well, God didn't cause it, but he can use it for good. As St. Augustine would remind us, to suggest that God has allowed something implies by the very nature of God and his attributes that he has in some sense ordained it because he could have vetoed it altogether. Did you catch that? I'm going to say it again, because that was really heavy. Augustine reminds us to suggest that God has allowed something implies by the very nature of God and his attributes that he has in some sense ordained it because he could have vetoed it or stopped it altogether. Rather, Piper says, a better illustration for God. Not as a firefighter, but rather picture him as a surgeon who carefully plans every detail, every cut, every incision, though it, it may cause temporary discomfort, but he does it ultimately for his patience, good, and his glory. This is what Joseph meant in chapter 50, verse 20, when he says, you meant it for evil brothers. God meant it for good. Joseph says there was one and only one plan the entire time. But in that plan, there were two different designs. And so, the text tells us this. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machor, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land, the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. If you don't have a big view of God the way Joseph does in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, I don't know how you're going to make it. I don't know how you're going to wait out the storms in life. 
And for that reason, I would argue it's precisely because of Joseph's big God theology that enables him in faith to wait. Or as the author of Hebrews would later say in Hebrews 11.22, it was by faith at the end of his life, by faith that Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And then later on in that same chapter, chapter 11.39 of Hebrews, we're told, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Joseph and others were commended. Did you catch that in verse 39 of Hebrews 11? They were commended. That means approved. And then he says that God provided something better for us. Who wants something better? I want something better. Did you hear that? Because that's the motivation that God's offering. There's something better, church. Because of the saints of old like Joseph, they didn't receive what was promised. So here's the big question. What is it? What is this something better that God has promised? What, what is this thing that he has that is better for us that Joseph and others didn't get to receive? Well, verse 40 has the answer. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, the final perfected salvation for all the saints who have gone on before, like Joseph, the future resurrection of our bodies, the reign of Jesus on the new earth, the restoration of all things, that's not going to happen without all the runners finishing the race. As the author of Hebrews goes on to explain in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's this picture the author of Hebrews wants us to see, right? There's Abraham, he's running, boom, he's across the finish line. And then comes Isaac after him, and then Jacob, and now Joseph, he's crossed the finish line. And they're all gathered up on the sidelines, waiting for us. Because God says, no one gets the glory of final perfection until everyone has finished the race. They will not be made perfect without us, the text tells us. And there is a huge implication for us, and that is, we are to run the race. There's this picture of all the Old Testament saints. They're waiting, they're cheering, keep going, don't stop, run the race, fight to to persevere in the faith, in love and obedience, just like Joseph, laboring to live missionally, sharing the gospel, and in doing so, becoming a light on a hill, a city shining brightly. Knowing that this great cloud of witnesses who has gone on before us will not be perfected until the church on earth finishes its appointed course. When all the runners one day cross the line, and then the joy Joy. Joy like the players, whoever they are, 
on whatever winning team tonight will never experience had they won a thousand games. And we will be glorified. Not one person at a time, but rather all together in one great consummation of the kingdom. And so we pray. Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come. And may it come soon. May it come soon. Oh, that we might finish the race like Joseph. We love you, Jesus. I thank you so much, God, for Joseph's big God theology. To know that our God is sovereign over every single thing. Even though it doesn't always make sense to us in the moment, in the severity, intensity of the pain of the situation. You know exactly what you're doing. God, I pray that you would give us a big God, Joseph-like theology. That we would see you the way that Joseph sees you. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord. For those of us who struggle with believing. For those of us who struggle with receiving forgiveness. For those of us who in those moments when we sin, we feel like we can't go and talk to you or spend time with you. Lord, help us not to believe those lies of the devil. And furthermore, Lord, for those of us who need to do the forgiving, but bitterness has taken hold in our life, I pray that you would free us from that. You have set us free from everything. Help us to live like it.